Hi, this is Kenny Loggins, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. It was pretty obvious. He was so delicious. He was so good-looking. had the most beautiful velvety brown eyes. He said... Well, should we go out? And I sort of said, no, I'm so sorry because I was going to see my boyfriend. And his face dropped. He was, looked so unhappy. And I thought, oh, God, poor George. Maybe he doesn't know anyone in London. So I said, oh, well, you come join us. And he said, no, absolutely. This wasn't what he was thinking of at all. Today's guest is Patty Boy, an English model, photographer, and an eyewitness to key moments in rock and roll history, particularly in terms of the lives and times of the former members of the Beatles, especially George Harrison. In 1962, Boyd began her modeling career, later appearing on the covers of Vogue and other leading magazines. In 1964, she met Harrison while working as an extra on the set of A Hard Day's Night. After moving in together at Harrison's Ken Fawn home in Esher, the couple married in January 1966. Boyd was a regular fixture in the Beatles' lives, attending the June 1967 Our World Live simulcast and joining them in Rishikesh, India for the group's February 1968 visit to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's ashram. In 1970, Boyd and Harrison relocated to Friar Park, the former Beatles' enormous Victorian mansion in Henley-on-Thames. By 1973, the Harrisons' relationship was disintegrating, and in 1974, the couple separated. Boyd later married Harrison's longtime friend and collaborator, Eric Clapton, who had nurtured a long-running passion for the model. Over the years, Boyd has been the subject of numerous high-profile love songs, including Harrison's chart-topping Beatles hit, Something. In 1970, Boyd was the subject of the legendary Derek and the Dominoes album, Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs. The album's title track describes Clapton's unrequited love for Boyd. Clapton later composed the top 20 U.S. hit, Wonderful Tonight, with Boyd as his inspiration. In 2007, Boyd published her best-selling autobiography entitled, Wonderful Tonight, George Harrison, Eric Clapton, and Me. In 2022, she published her latest book, Patty Boyd, My Life in Pictures. And this coming April, she will appear as headlining guest at the annual Fest for Beatles fans. Welcome, Patty Boyd. Thank you so much for joining us today, Patty. Your new book is dynamite. 
Oh, Ken, thank you so much. I must say I'm very proud of it. I'm very happy the way it's presented. It's very elegant. It's a proper coffee table book. And I think it also has a sort of um, a bit of a history, fashion history to it, uh, explaining about clothes, how clothes really from the 50s going into the 60s was not terribly attractive, more like my mother, you know. And then uh, it... <laughs> Gradually, we became really rather rebellious and skirts just had to get higher. What I really love about the book is the way that I feel like, and, and I, I have your other works, but I, I really enjoy the way the story emerges along with the photograph. So it it creates a really vivid experience. It's not not that your, your book, Wonderful Tonight, didn't do that, but it... Uh. It, it's such a visual and literary kind of experience. Yeah, Ken, um, that's really the, the whole idea. I just think the people nowadays don't really have enough time to read a full book, you know, that size. And I thought that anecdotes giving a little smattering of an idea of what was going on in my life at that time is, is fine. Combined with the photographs, I think it sort of works. It is, and it 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 leaves. It's almost more of an emotional impact, uh, interestingly enough. And your story, of course, um, is is filled with them, including your early years um, with family life, and and I know the challenges you experienced. But then, um, I wonder if we could talk about how it all began. How did you? Do you, you know, our, I think our listeners will be interested to learn, were you discovered as a model? How did, how did that career emerge? Was it always a plan? No, it wasn't a plan. I was actually rather a slocky teenager and didn't really know what I wanted to do. But I was very keen on fashion. And um, anyway, my mother got me a job through somebody she knew at Elizabeth Arden. And... Um, I, so I turned up in Bond Street, very, very beautiful and elegant shop. And I wasn't really sure what I was doing except to help anybody, whatever they were doing, showing clients in to have their face treatments or hair cut or whatever. And anyway, while I was there, somebody came in and asked me if I'd ever thought about being a model. So I'm afraid I had to tell a little bit of a lie, a white lie. And I said, no, I hadn't. And she said, well, I think you would be great. Please come to my offices. Uh, I work for a teen magazine um, and we'll see what we can do. So the following week, I went to her office and um, she ha happened to have a photographer there who took a few photos of me and they were very pleased with the photos and took them and introduced me to my agent who took me on immediately. So it was, you know, it was I was really lucky. But then... Then all the hard work began where I had to persuade photographers to take photographs of me and, you know, they, it's good for them because they have a model who, who's prepared to sort of stand there and while they alter the lights, etc. So it was an experience for them. They needed somebody to photograph and in return they would give me prints. And with these prints I had a portfolio and I had a list of people to go and see in London people who would do advertising campaigns or all the magazines. So I trunged around London with all these photographs, showing them to photographers, hoping that they would give me a job. Gradually, gradually, 
You know, I, my agent got a phone call. Yes, we'd like Patty for this or that. You know, and uh, my appointment book started filling up really nicely. So in a way, you were discovered, but you also had to hit the bricks in a way and make a lot of things happen for yourself. Oh, definitely. Nothing comes for free. You've got to do, you have to put one step forward to sort of seize the day and help the energy of the universe push you forward. You can't just sit there and accept and do nothing about it. You must go with the flow. Did you feel like um, this was the career for you at that point? Was your mother right? Or or did you miss being what, you, as you just said, a sloppy teen? <laughs> well, my, my mother didn't realize what I was doing, what I got up to, and how I was, you know, racing ahead with the modeling. And um, when I showed her some photos in a magazine, she was astounded. She said, how on earth did I do that? And of course, I hadn't been phoning her and keeping her up to date with what I was doing because I was sharing a flat uh, in Kensington with about five other girls. It was very crowded. And, um, you know, so we all paid a little bit of rent. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I just got some really good jobs. So how does that how did that get you to Twickenham and on the set of A Hard Day's Night? <laughs> I will tell you how that happened. I was working for a photographer and his uh, assistant came in and said to me that my agent had phoned her and told me after this job to go to an address in the West End of London with my portfolio of photographs for an interview. So I went to the address and when I went in, there was this you know, big group of girls in there all sitting down holding their photographs, all waiting, waiting to be called in. And then finally I was called into the room where there were about three guys and a couple of women. And um, I recognised one of the guys because he was a director and I'd done a couple of TV commercials with him. So I thought, oh, it's for a, a crisp company. So I went home and the phone rang and my agent said, now you're not allowed to tell anybody, but you've just got a part in the Beatles film. I said, I think you've got that wrong. I mean, I, they haven't even seen me yet. I mean, how how do you know? And she said, well, that was the interview you went for earlier. I said, oh, that's so funny. I thought it was for something else. I thought it was for a TV, uh, commercial. She said, no, 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 it's for the, to be, appear in the Beatles film. And then I panicked. I said, well, the thing is, I'm very shy and um, I really hadn't planned to be an actress. And this is just going to be ghastly. I, I'd be too nervous. He said, no, you'll be fine. You just have to dress as a schoolgirl and you've only got one word to say. And I thought, well, hey, I can do that. And she said, but don't tell anyone. And what I did eventually tell my boyfriend, I mean, weeks later, he said to me, I bet you'll fall for Paul McCartney. How wrong could he be? <laughs> so he was already concerned then. Yes. Yes, <laughs> so so. Yeah. So when it comes to these Beatles, you know, this is 1964 now. How aware were you of, of the sensation they'd been creating? Do you know, I wasn't completely aware. Um, I think probably people in America were more aware of them than we were in England. Because England really didn't have kind of like fanatical fans as they do in America. I don't know why, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I'd heard their music 
and I really liked their music, but I had no idea that they were going to be as, you know, globally famous as they were. And of course, Hard Day's Night, it's still right at the cusp of some of that fame. Yes. Yeah, it was the first film they'd made. And they were, you know, they were emerging. They were still emerging, still working, still touring and making records and, you know, introducing the world to who they were and, you know, wanting everybody to listen to their music. Quite rightly so. <laughs> so, so whom did you meet first of, of these, these new guys? Well, it was very funny, Ken. I was on the train with a couple of the other girls and the train took off from Paddington Station and we went on for about 20 minutes and then the train suddenly stopped at this tiny little railway station and there was nobody on the platform and then I saw four figures. And this was like a movie in itself. Anyway, these four figures naturally, of course, were the Beatles. And they hopped onto the plane, onto the train and then they came into our carriage and introduced themselves and shook our hands and then they went and we started laughing. Oh, my God, they're so charming. They're so polite and they're handsome. And, uh, and the train took off and then um, filming began. So was, was your boyfriend right? Did you sort of fall for Paul? <laughs> no, I didn't. I thought they were all absolutely divine. You know, they're so funny and so witty and fast. And they had this funny Liverpool accent that I had never heard before. And so, uh, and there were a lot of words. I didn't know what, we didn't know what they were saying. We didn't really understand them. And um, I mean, the train journey was about five, six hours to get down to Cornwall and then six hours to get back. So we were on the train a very long time, long enough to all get to know each other as well as doing, you know, filming. You can't, I can't watch those segments and not just fall in love with I should have known better all over again. Yes, I know. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. I think the film was very nice. I, I understand. I did see it again. I mean, I saw it obviously when it came out, but then I saw it again years later when I was on Catalina Island. And uh, they got a copy of the revamped, cleaned up version of the, of the film. It was absolutely fantastic. I thought it was a really good film. And it's very clean and crisp and very black and white. And they've done an amazing job. And the sound was incredible as well. So when did you sort of discover that George liked you or you liked George or, <laughs> or how that emerged? Well, Ken, it was pretty obvious. He was so delicious. He was so good looking had the most beautiful velvety brown eyes. And we would find ourselves and it's quite near each other a lot of the time. We sat next to each other at lunch. And then we were, as we were coming back towards London, apparently, now I don't remember this, he asked me to marry him, but I must have thought, oh, it's part of their Liverpudlian humour. So I took no notice of it. And then he said, would I come out with him that evening? Would should we go out? And I sort of said, no, I'm so sorry because I was going to see my boyfriend. And his face dropped. He was looked so unhappy. And I thought, oh, God, poor George. Maybe he doesn't know anyone in London. So I said, oh, well, you come join us. And he said, no, absolutely. This wasn't what he was thinking of at all. 
And so that was it. Now, if, I mean, if in today, if this happened today, we would exchange phone numbers, you know, with our mobile phones, but there were no mobile phones in those days. And I might never have seen him again. But Dick Lester, the director, obviously thought he wanted us to see each other again because he called me and the other girls back to do a, a, um, a press shot at Twickenham Studios. And, uh, of course, by this time, Ken, I told my boyfriend that perhaps we know we shouldn't be seeing each other. You know, oh. our time was up. Our time was up. Basically, I dumped him. So then when I saw George again, and he said, how's your boyfriend? I said, well, I don't have a boyfriend. So um, that was it. That was the start. We'll be back with more from Patty Boyd after these messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back with Patty Boyd on Everything Fab Four. Is it true? Was your first date chaperoned by Brian Epstein? Well, I mean, you could, I suppose you could say that. I mean, we were, we were only, I was, I was actually 19 and George was 20. And Brian organized everything for us. He organized where we should have dinner in a club where he was a member and we weren't members. So this is how we got in. And then I think, you know, he wanted to have dinner with us anyway. And he he knew the menu. He knew which wines to choose, etc. because he was quite sophisticated. And we were, you know, we were very young and we'd only been to some little bistros, you know, little cafes before. And so Brian was there to sort of educate us, I suppose you could say. When did you you start to realize that maybe George was the one? Uh, when I realized that, you know, I'd have to cancel a few modding show, um, gigs. And, you know, because I wanted to hang out with George. I thought, why am I doing this? I love modeling. <laughs> and of course... <laughs> You know, I just, I realize I just, I'm mad about George. You know, one of the wonderful things, and and I get the the beautiful honor every fall of teaching a Beatles course here on the Jersey Shore. And we go step by step, song by song, album by album. And it is amazing the progress from those earliest, earliest songs all the way to the end. It's just magnificent. Um, What was it like for you to be right there and watch this something that's going to last for centuries happen right before your eyes and right behind your ears. <laughs> yeah. Well, you see, the thing is that at the time you don't realize that I didn't realize that I was in such a unique position. I knew I was in a pretty good position, but I, you know, at the time, you see, the Beatles didn't even know how long they would carry on being famous. So let alone, you know, here we are, 2023, the people are still talking about them. They still have many, many fans. We didn't think, we didn't, and they didn't think like that in those days. 
You know, we didn't know that their fame and their notoriety and their music would last quite so long. It does seem unimaginable, right? That the idea that, you know, some musicians are still going to be well-known 50, 60, 100 years later, you know, in a beat band does seem pretty outlandish. <laughs> well, it is. It is. It's, you know, it's, I don't know. We, we know. We never knew. Who would know? Who would have guessed? I mean, I remember the press would come to um, the house that George and I lived in, and one guy said, said in, in all seriousness, he said, when is the bubble going to burst? And, you know, and that was in sort of like 66, he said that. 1966, he thought the Beatles were going to come to a crashing end. So, you know, the press didn't have any idea that it would last quite so long. You know, and ultimately it is that music that keeps driving this story because, you know, somewhere today a six-year-old is discovering the Beatles and they can't get enough of them. Can you believe? I know. It's extraordinary. So when you are, of course, seeing what George is up to up close and personal and his growth and his elevation from the songwriter who writes, don't bother me to here comes the sun during those Beatles years is remarkable. Mm. Um, that must've been something to, to witness. Oh yeah. I mean, I just think George's songwriting got better and better. He was so super talented, um, but there was frustration there because, you know, John being in the studio with John and Paul, who were, you know, like the ultimate duo songwriters, it left little space for George, although in every song that George, that John and Paul wrote, George, you know, would give his, his, his bit, you know, he would add to it, to each song. And, um, but they'd only allow him really and truly to have two of his songs on each album. So it was a bit frustrating for him. But, you know, on the other hand, he was building up a wonderful catalogue of his music. Those bits that you mentioned, we uh, in, in our class uh, just last year, we actually devoted attention to listening for those bits and the contribution that they made to these Lennon and McCartney compositions. And it's yes. extraordinary. I mean, listen, please please me, right? George comes up with these guitar licks that make the song. Yes. And it happens over and over again. There uh, we are, Ken. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it's all of them really well. I don't know so much about Ringo, but certainly the three were very close and worked, you know, they you know, it didn't in a way, it didn't matter who wrote the song. They all worked as hard and contributed as much energy and creativity as possible. So uh, you must have, by this point, gotten to know Big Mal. One of the reasons, of course, they could work all night was they had this guy who would go get some takeout or get new guitar strings in the middle of the night. What was what was Big Mal like? Oh, he was like a big bear. He was like a big cuddly bear. He was always there and he always had a, a little smile and soft, soft eyes. I remember him. Well, he's he so was sweet. He, yeah, he would be so sweet. And there was nothing that he would say no to. He was never in a temper. He was always so sweet and accommodating. And if anybody needed anything doing, if he wasn't doing something for one of the Beatles, then he would go and do something for me, for example. 
Um, you know, he was, no, he was adorable. You know, you performed, um, as I like to remind folks, an important role in bringing Eastern ideas to George and then eventually to the Beatles, right? Well, I mean, I was the first one to learn how to meditate. Yes, this is correct. But George was aware of, of meditation and Indian uh, culture because we had been, the year before, we had been around India with Ravi Shankar, who introduced George to not only sitar and Indian music, but, you know, culture and spirituality and yoga and everything that, you know, India has to offer. And so we were aware of it. But when we got back to England, I saw a little advertisement in a newspaper that said uh, somebody was giving classes in meditation. So I phoned a girlfriend and said, let's go, let's go and check this out. And we loved it. It was transcendental meditation. And, 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 and we can't lose the sight of the importance of this. You know, here is this, the biggest band in the world and most probably in history. And they take time out, you know, along with you and others to to go and experience this. It's really quite extraordinary. You know, I, it's hard to imagine any artist today saying, you know, I think we're going to go spend time with Maharishi or later we're going to spend time and go to Rishikesh. Um, Ken, yes, I see what you're saying. But you see, you have to take the time into consideration. Brian Epstein had just died. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the guys were really mourning and they were so, they were so distraught and they were so confused and puzzled about what they could, what's going to happen to their career, where are they going to go now, who's going to look after them, who's going to direct them. Plus, he was their dear, dear friend. And Maharishi had the idea that, you know, maybe if we all went to India, it would be a splendid opportunity to mourn Brian's death properly and be quiet and, you know, away from recording studios and fans and, you know, just to be quiet and and, um, reflect on Brian's life. Well, it was certainly magnificent. And it, of course, created opportunities for them to move away from, uh, you know, the psychedelia of 1967 and back to a more guitar-oriented sound, but also to... As, you know, as you yourself did, connect with those ideals uh, yes. from, from Eastern thought. I, I'll show you this photo. I know you've seen it a thousand times. It's one of the saddest I can even think of. Oh, when you when you went to Brian's memorial. Yes, there's George in the back, smoky away. On his right is me, and on his left is Neil Aspinall. And this is Paul in the front, isn't it? Yes, and. Obviously, poor Big Mal just looks shell-shocked. Yeah, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Yeah, he's got this responsibility of driving us all there. Yeah, that's very, that's an amazingly powerful photograph. You see, everybody's in shock. We're all in shock. It was so shocking. It seemed so unreal that we were all meditating and being spiritual and something so extraordinary, a life ends just like that a very important life a life that they were all relying on to guide them the rest of their career 
Yeah. I, uh, one of my, and I think the world's favorite instances is um, the recording of Yellow Submarine, which you attended and Mal, what, uh, famously uh, strapped on a bass drum and marched around the room. <laughs> that was so sweet. That was lovely. That was lovely when they were recording Yellow Submarine because we were all there singing and, you know, being a crowd in the background. So as as the Beatles are are getting to the end of that amazing run, and of course, you know, George is just scoring there at the end with While My Guitar Gently Weeps, with Something, and with Here Comes the Sun, which are routinely the most popular Beatles songs, right? Uh, yes. Could, yeah. do, could you tell it was changing him in terms of how he felt about himself as a as a contributor? Well, I think it really gave him the confidence um, to, you know, to to carry on and write such wonderful songs. You see, now he didn't have Paul and, and John um, sort of there looking at him, watching him, listening. I think he found it easier to be on his own. And I guess that's why All Things Must Pass is such a magnificent to this day record right it really holds yeah up. yeah and it you know and it's honest you see and all things must pass it's true it's true it's a truth i mean we can be sad about losing all sorts of things including people but you know life has to go on and all things must pass he was so right about that yeah it's it's a, a brilliant piece of poetry and music and it is yeah um, well, and and I don't know how anyone would answer this question, so feel free to just dodge it. But to have a song like something written about you, and to know that it's this this masterwork, and of course the musicianship by all of the Beatles on the song is amazing. Mm. What is that like when you reflect back on something like that? Pun intended. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's you know, it's still holds up as one of the most beautiful songs ever written. And um, and I have to pinch myself to think that George wrote it for me because when he had just written it before, before they'd gone back into the studio to record it properly, I just thought, oh, God, that's so sweet of him. And I didn't really think too much about it. I just thought, oh, that's a sweet thing, George, to say or even think. But then, of course, when the whole thing was completed, and everybody had put their bit on it in the rep in the studio, and it came out just magnificent. And it still stands up today. I just think it's an iconic song that really can only get better. It's so beautiful. Well, one of those bits, of course, was uh, well. There's Paul's bass part, which is just melodic, but also George Martin with the orchestration is almost its own song. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was, what was George like, Mr. Martin, Sir George? He was the most charming man. He was uh, a very educated intellectual. He knew about classical. He really, his home really was in classical music. And, um, but he, he had the most wicked sense of humour. He was so much fun. And you wouldn't think so when you first meet him. He looked very sort of upright and straight and rather like a schoolmaster. But in fact, you know, he's just, he was a delight to be with. And um, 
you could tell he was always thinking of music. It was in his head all the time. Well, that backing score that he creates for something just washes over you. Yeah, it's, I know. Doesn't it just? And, and, and not surprising, he, he has a great score, too, for Here Comes the Sun. Mm. As a guitar player or a, a one who attempts to play the guitar, what George concocted for that, for that acoustic uh, bit at the beginning and throughout the song is just magisterial. <laughs> yeah, it is. Absolutely. And so recognizable. You know, it, I know it's George playing. <laughs> That's right. And all the changing yeah. time signatures. Well, all of this happens at the same time you're moving into this new home. Yeah. Gosh, that was a, a, a huge task. I don't think we realized what a, an enormous task it was going to be. I mean, it really was. It took years. Of course, in the following years, um, you would... As, as history knows, uh, go with Eric. Um, it, one of my favorite lines by you is in your wonderful Tonight book, and you wrote um, that you discovered that George had actually been your soulmate and Eric was just a playmate. I found yeah. that really uh, touching um, and well-written, by the way. <laughs> I think I, I, you know, I think that is still true today. Thinking about it, yeah. Except Eric didn't know how to stop playing. Poor thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> mm. Did, there was a, a poignant story in your new book about um, uh, about seeing George for the last time. But George was visiting Ringo and Barbara, and they lived about three miles, four miles away from me, from my cottage. So when George was there, he rang me to see if I was at home, and I said yes, and he said he was coming over. And he had never been to my cottage before, and it was lovely that he came over. I was in the dark room doing some printing. Anyway, he came, and it was lovely. He bought me some little gifts. And I think, on reflection, that he wanted to know where I was living, he wanted to see where I was living and uh, he wanted to have tea with me, give me a few little personal gifts. And um, as he drove off, I knew that would be the last time I'd see him. So he died, you know, a few months after that. It's, a, it's such a poignant part of your book. When you look back at this again, it must seem surreal at times. Uh, I, I remember a wonderful quote from George, I think in the 80s, where he said, I don't remember the Beatles anymore, but I look back and it's almost like I'm experiencing them too. Wow, did he? Yeah. Oh, God, I totally understand that. I get that. The experience was so unique and so extraordinary. And beyond extraordinary, that everywhere they went, they were recognized and, and shouted at and, you know, people demanding pieces of them. And, you know, in a way to accept that, you have to turn off. You can't just be totally present and remember it all because it's just too, too much. And I think that what George means is that after time, he had, you know, a few minutes, well, a few years to reflect and then he could see it properly, see it for what it was. I think at the moment it's too intense. You can't grasp something that intense. Too much for the brain. 
I think you can, you know, with with time, you can digest and realize what what you've experienced and and been through. But I think at the moment of the, those explosive moments, it's too enormous for us to digest properly. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life, and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie Mal Evans. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a Wonderwall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. <laughs>